0: Let's start with this fact today that temptation is a way of life. In fact, it's a way of life for all of us. So there are some questions that we need to kind of ask at the beginning. And these are the questions. Why are some people able to withstand a lot of temptation and other people are not? Or why is it that some people blame or even resent God... Uh, for what has happened while other people rely on him for strength in the time of temptation. Why is it that some people succumb while other people show, and this is the message title, uncompromising wisdom? Now, why is that? Well, to understand it, I think we have to kind of go back to our text a little bit and uh, look at what I call three lies about Temptation. Now the Greek word for temptation is parazzo. There's another word that just sounds good when you say it. Parazo almost sounds like German or uh, Italian. Parazo, which means to try or test. Now if you're going to take a piece of wood to see how long, how how tough it was, and you're going to bend it, that's parazo. You're you're testing it. You're you're seeing testing its strength. Uh, sometimes it means to tempt to evil. Now I would suggest that those people who fall, who succumb to sin, do so because they bought into one of at least three lies that we're going to look at today. And those who make it are the ones who recognize and actually reject these three lies, or these tests, or these trials. Now, these lies were addressed in part of what Jeff read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let me read you again these last verses. He said, but remember that the temptations, these prazzo, that come into your life are no different from what everybody else experiences. We're all tempted in the same way. He said, and God is faithful. He will keep that temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. So when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give into it. So what are these lies that the world would tell us? Or what are these lies that we often tell ourselves? Well, here's lie number one. It's this idea that nobody else goes through what we're going through. You just don't understand, Pastor. I got a special sin. Really? How did you get so blessed? I heard that one time. You just don't understand. Now, a few years ago... I read a sad story about a pastor who is caught having adulterous relationships with several of his members. Now, instead of repenting, uh, he explained his actions on church on Sunday, on Facebook, live. He said his sins were excusable because his sex drive was so much greater than most of the men in his congregation. And because of that, he said his church should have compassion on him because of his condition. Well, thankfully his church didn't buy the lie. (laughs) Now, why not? Well, very simply because there are no special cases when it comes to sin. Uh, There are no people who are excused because uh, they have more sin or a different kind of sin than you or I have. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different than what other people experience. Now, Satan would have us con- convince ourselves, you try to convince us, that you are alone in your temptation for a couple of different reasons. One reason he would suggest is that some people attempt to justify their sin because of special circumstances. Now, not only is that attitude destructive, but it leads to a person uh, into sinning instead of resisting. But it's also destructive because if someone else doesn't think they're guilty, they won't confess that sin. I'm going to jump a little ahead in First John 1, verse 9. No doubt you've heard this passage before. It says, but if we confess our sin, doesn't make it just what it is. If we confess our sin, God is faithful, he is just, and he's willing to forgive us and to cleanse us from all every wrong, all unrighteousness, all of our sin." There's a second reason we need, to, we need to think about here. When people think that they're the only one experiencing a particular kind of sin, they'll be reluctant to seek help from other believers. See, God's design for the church is to help one another. That's kind of the purpose of Restore, to help other people who have been broken in some way, including ourselves. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes this, So encourage each other and build each other up. That's part where we're here today. We all stood around before, laughed, drank a little coffee, ate some banana bread. We're kind of joking around. We were having a good time. We were encouraging. We were putting God's courage back into ourselves. He said, but just as you are already doing, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. So we have a calling, too. There are some people out there that have fallen into sin and they're just kind of lazy in it. We need to go and encourage them as well. It says, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. Now, when I'm going through temptation, and yes, pastors fall into temptation, believe it or not. uh, I ought to be able to count on the church to help me through. Now, I have been particularly blessed in the last number of years to have what we call the grind guys. One, two, three, Mark would be four, and myself. I'm positive that if I would have raised something, I know it's probably happened as we gathered together. We confessed. We didn't say confess a sin, but we said we were struggling with this or whatever. But you knew you were in a safe place because these guys would push back against it. It's also what we do here on a Monday night. We gather chairs together. and We've had as many as eight men here where it's a safe place to say, well, if something's bothering us, this is what bothers us and we kind of try to encourage one another see we when someone gets the idea that nobody else will understand because nobody else is going through what we're going through um, they often won't go to other believers for help and without that help there's kind of a chance that they kind of get stuck in that it keeps going around and around now part of the prob- part of the the uh, blame for this problem does lie with the fact that the church often is a very severe judge we point fingers at people and we kind of go well you know like that Pharisee in the public remember how the Pharisee stood up in the front of the church and I said I thank God I'm not like the rest of the people who attend Restore particularly those who sit in the back row <laughs> you know but that poor <laughs> well the guy sitting way in the back all by himself what did the publican say <laughs> God be merciful to me A sinner. Now, I I just say, how dare we ever look down on somebody else? Now, we're going to be living in a community for who knows how long. A community that suffers from a whole variety of sins, believe me. People who are caught up in drugs. People may have been in prison. People who are in abusive relationships. uh, People who have abused their wives, their children, maybe abused their husbands, whatever. But we can't stand and point fingers and say, Look at those bad people, because at the same time, I was always taught if you're pointing a finger at somebody, guess what? There are three of them pointing back at you. If I say, Ed, well, three of them are pointing back at me, and one more is up and is blaming God for even creating Ed. And we've got to be very careful not to do that. Here's the second lie that has been taught to us, and it's this that the temptation is too strong for me to resist. I can't help it. It's just too strong. I'm going to tell you another sad story about a pastor, a very high profile evangelist whose name's, whose name if I mention it, you probably all go, mm, okay. Uh, he had a public moral failure in his church. In response to his failure, he decided to post a video and send it out to all the members of his huge congregation. Now on his video, he said he had a dream and in the dream, he saw a cobra. And the cobra was in striking position, and the cobra was aimed at his chest. But suddenly, he said, the dream kind of shot forward, and the cobra was now two stories tall. Now, he tried to slay the cobra, he said, but the cobra was just too big. That was his story. And then he explained his interpretation of his dream, which is a dangerous thing to do. He said that the snake um, represented the temptation. His excuse was that the cobra was way too big for him to handle. Now, that kind of excuse is pretty common. People excuse him all the time by saying, I couldn't help myself. There was nothing I could do about it. After all, I had somebody say, well, Pastor, you don't expect me to be perfect. I've heard you say we were born in sin and conceived in sin. You've talked about concupiscence, you know, a great big seminary word. We're just plain simple, sin. See, that was an excuse that person tried to use. But I'm going to take you back to the verse that Jeff read again before. God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can stand up against it. Now, the reason that this particular lie has so much appeal is, on one hand, it used to be true. Before we were ever redeemed, before we were ever brought into the family of God, we were so enslaved by sin, there's almost nothing we could do. In fact, our very nature, well, was to sin. But if Pastor Mark were around today, he'd probably say, well, in Romans chapter 3. And he would drag us all back to Romans, and he would say, but we have been redeemed, we have been bought by, by the blood of Jesus. Now it's interesting, the people in Rome would have have had a totally different thought in their mind as they heard that passage from Romans, uh, because it invoked a picture of a slave market. It was a thriving part of the Roman economy, and when a person was a slave, they were completely subject to whoever owned them. They had no choice, and so it is when people are caught up in sin. We have no opportunity to be free. And at that point, we could use the excuse that temptation is so great, there's nothing we can do about it. But believe it or not, in the days of the Roman Empire, there were some good people, Christians, who didn't believe in slavery. And some of these people would go into the slave market and buy slaves for only one purpose, and that was to set them free. Now, the Romans actually had a word for this practice, the Greek word, apolotrusis. Apolotrusis. The word is the same that's used in Romans 1, Romans three twenty four, redeemed. They redeemed these people. They bought them back out of slavery and then set them free. So as I think about this, you know, when I'm enslaved to sin, I'm under the control of sin. Uh, I'm being kind of sold on the open market to the highest bidder. But Jesus comes into my life, he comes into your life with compassion. He pays the price, which was his own sinful, sinless life. And because he paid for it, he said, now you are free. We're no longer naturally compelled to sin. Now, the problem is, a lot of people today still don't feel very free. They still feel kind of caught up by sin. They feel like sin has ultimate control of their life. And the devil offers, well, he's got a whole wide array. He's got a he's got a buffet of stuff for you to choose from. Uh, Hebrews speaks of the pleasures of sin. You know, sin is fun for a season, Scripture says. And we need to admit that. Uh, I mean, do you know of any sins that seem like a lot of fun while you're doing the sinning? Yeah, you probably think of a few things. Yet we still have the choice to say no. Who is it, Betty Ford? when she talked about drugs just say no now first Corinthians 10:13 again but God is faithful he will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't that it, so that you cannot so that you can stand up against it see that God actually knows your breaking point and because he's merciful he promises that he will never let that temptation go beyond its bounds so just a word of encouragement, if you're being tempted, it must be a temptation that you're strong enough to resist. Uh, because otherwise, God would not allow that temptation to come into your life. And as long as we resist that temptation, God promises that he'll ensure that that it never gets too strong for you to push back. See, the only way to uh, for the temptation to get too strong is to give into it. You know, I can't can't stop it. I might as well go ahead and do it. But see, when we succumb, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until suddenly we don't have a chest-high cobra. We get a two-story tall cobra. But we can't blame God for that because we built that. Let me go back to that evangelist who had the dream. This is kind of an interesting little twist to his story as well. Needless to say the people in this church didn't buy it. And we have to ask Yay Church for standing up for that. They did not not only did they not buy the story, they didn't buy his interpretation. In fact, another pastor on his staff sent out a video along with a letter and explained that he had the interpretation all wrong. Now, I don't know how you would approach that. He said, yeah, okay, pastor, the snake probably symbolized temptation. However, you failed to consider the fact that the first appearance of the snake was when he was only chest level. The real interpretation, he said, was to kill the snake while it's small and don't let it grow. You let it get too big for you to handle. I think he's uh, serving fries someplace today, that Pastor. But friends, even when it grows too big to handle, we've got a God who can handle big stuff. When we repent, when we go through our words of brokenness, when we fully acknowledge our sin, uh, he helps us overcome that sin and that temptation. Now, does God allow us to be tempted? Well, he certainly doesn't stop it. He allows that to come in because it is withstanding trials that make us stronger. And he'll never let, let temptation get to the point where it just overwhelms us. God knows us best, and he knows that some of these things make us stronger. Now, there's a third lie here, and the third lie is this. There is no way out except to give in. You ever hear that? You know, back in my days as a teacher, as a high school teacher, I was talking with a student one day who had a problem. He just continually got into fights in school. And he recognized he was wrong, and he used to say stuff like, "Uh, well, Mr. Cole, they always start start with me, and so I have to fight them. And and so he kind of painted a picture that uh, seemed like no matter how hard he tried to get out of the situation, he just couldn't do it. They just kept coming at him. And I have to... Tell you, I felt sorry for him. I, I felt like said, "Gosh, maybe you should get some brass knuckles." <laughs> I was going to encourage him to really fight. I thought, "No, I shouldn't be doing that." But happily, unlike the other examples uh, I've given, he didn't use this to justify or excuse his sin of getting into fights. Nonetheless, for him, this was a real difficult struggle. And looking back at his situation, it seemed like there was no easy way out. And that's where I finally thought of something. I, I told him, there's not there's not going to be an easy way out of this situation. And that's because we like to think of pleasant escapes. And the escapes from sin are not always a pleasant escape. But there is a promise that there is a way out. First Corinthians 10.13 again, when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you'll not give in to it. Now, to show you that it's not always a pleasant escape, how many of you have ever heard of a guy in the Bible named Joseph? Uh, I'm not going to ask you which one you're thinking of. You're probably thinking of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, You may be thinking of... uh, Well, I'll tell you who I'm thinking about. This is a guy in the Old Testament. We're going to go back to the Old Testament for a bit. Joseph was a young man who was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. Threw him in a hole. Fortunately... (laughs) People came along, bought him, and hauled him off to slavery. But when he got there, he was successful like gangbusters. And he was suddenly promoted to be the head of Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was a ranking official in the Egyptian government. So things were turning around for him. And as a slave, he had it made. He was ruler over all that Potiphar had. Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing because he was such a righteous young man. Obviously, he was also very good looking. And um, that caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. And one day, as it happened, Potiphar was gone. All the servants were out of the house. Nobody was around. And she came trying to do what? To seduce him. Come, sleep with me. See, there was nobody around. Nobody could see what was happening. Nobody would ever know. And besides, she had a hold of his shirt. (laughs) She had a pretty good grip on him. So in a way, Joseph was physically trapped by this temptation. He was a young man, and well, young men have urges. Uh, He must have been tempted, but he also realized that he was trapped, and he had the perfect excuse. And if ever there was no way out, this story seemed like it was. But Joseph refused to buy into that lie of no way out. He found a way out and he took it. He ran and left his cloak behind. What was the result of running away that day? He was thrown into prison. Well, hold it. I just resisted sin. I mean, couldn't you let me free and have a happy life? No, you're going to go to prison for a while. So the way out of sin can sometimes be costly. But if your priority is only to live a holy life, then you're going to find uh, the way out, no matter what the consequences of that way are. But if you really don't have your Christian walk as a high priority, uh, if you value comfort or convenience or what people think of you or anything else that's more important, it's, it's easy to believe the lie that there's no way out. Now, when I think about Joseph and I think about guys in prison who got nailed for a crime that they did not commit. And yes, believe it or not, there are people in prison who, if you want to accept their story, did not do the crime, but they're still paying the time. Um, but there's a way out. But there are two truths here. Truth number one is, if everything was fair, we'd all be immediately dead. <laughs> well, I didn't come to church to hear that. But that's true. It's only because God is merciful that we're even here. And I have to admit that while it's true, it doesn't provide much comfort. I'm not going to stop the sermon there. You go, "Oh my gosh, you just said if everything was all equal, we'd all be dead." So we can take a look at truth number two. And truth number two is this should make you feel uh, better. Uh, there is not one wrong ever committed that will go unpunished. Romans 12:19, "Vengeance is mine. I will repay." says the Lord Romans 8:28 if we throw in another bible passage and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God for those who are called according to his purpose Now we see a beautiful story developing we keep following this whole story of Joseph as a result of running away from Potiphar's wife he spent 14 years in prison for a crime he did not commit but in the end what happened He is elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. And that position helped him save not only his entire family, it also helped him preserve almost the entire known world at that time because of his storing things at key times during this famine. Even at the end of his life, if you get to the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter fifty. Uh, verse 20, he's got his brothers in front of him, and his brothers are like shaking in their sandals because they know what they had done. And what did he say to them? But as for you, <laughs> and you can imagine, that he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Friends, we need to realize that we've been given the, po- <clears throat> we've been given the power. We have what the guys down in prison would call the resident president. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And that Holy Spirit <clears throat> is really a lot, what allows us and encourages us to live a holy life. Now, it's not through our own efforts, but because God promised us. I mean, who cares what the world tells us? Who cares what our culture today tells us? See, God's authoritative word says that we can live through and fight against and battle temptations And live this holy life. And holy by this word means to be set apart. A set apart life where we are different. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57 says, and we'll close with this. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless us all in our fight together with the spirit in facing temptation